From Washington, D.C., across the nation and around the world, stand by for an overview of the hottest topics and people being discussed on air, online, at the coffee shop and across the backyard fence, powered by the research of Talkers magazine, The National Conversation. It's time for the Michael Harrison Wrap. Here's Michael Harrison. Thank you, Victoria Jones. Monday, April 11th through Friday, April 15th, 2022. It was a week of war, violence, a potential hostile big tech takeover, rising prices and heightening tensions. I had the opportunity this week to participate in a dinner discussion at Mar-a-Lago that was joined by the exclusive club's official greeter and house record spinner, DJ Trump himself. We're about to embark upon a powerful hour of Black Belt Talk Radio, during which your tolerance for hearing different but legitimate points of view will be tested. We've got lefties, righties, and fence-sitters. Please don't get angry. Just listen closely, and while doing so, maintain a degree of educated skepticism. We'll be joined by Kevin Casey with the Talker's Top 10 Stories of the Week, along with Curtis Lewa, Jim Bohannon, Victoria Jones, Bill O'Reilly, and Matthew B. Harrison. Influential yappers from across the country with microphones, smartphones, and digital recording devices sharing their observations and the feelings of their target constituents with whom they do a daily dance of affirmation in a fragmented, noisy world where we try to avoid the modern-day syndrome of seeking victory at the expense of truth. Welcome to the Michael Harrison Rap, heard coast-to-coast and around the world on great radio stations across the U.S. and the U.K., the past week's hottest political and social topics discussed in the American talk media. Information is gathered from a variety of sources, including data tracked by the broadcasting trade publication Talkers Magazine, of which I'm editor and publisher. This installment of the Michael Harrison Rap is being brought to you in part by the classic rock band Gunhill Road. Check them out at gunhillroadmusic.com. Okay, here we go. Joining us now is Kevin Casey, executive editor of Talkers Magazine. Kevin, give us a rundown of the 10 most talked about stories on talk shows in America this past week. Thank you, Michael. At number 10 this week, space exploration. Remarkable breakthroughs and advances in astronomy and the public's increasing interest in the subject are being noticed by the news talk media. The James Webb Space Telescope, which is still being deployed a million miles from Earth, is sending tantalizing images of distant galaxies and ancient star formations that go back almost to the Big Bang itself. Get ready for mind-bending discoveries about the origins of the universe and perhaps the detection of extraterrestrial life when this $10 billion marvel of technology is fully operational within the next couple of months. At number nine, climate change. Regardless of its cause, human or otherwise, evidence continues to mount that the general temperature of the planet is rising as are sea levels. Scientists now report that another major Antarctic ice shelf could very well be on the verge of collapse. At number eight, education. Parents and voters around the country are becoming increasingly vocal and concerned that they're losing input and control over what their children are being taught in the public schools. Debate over Florida's parental rights and education law, recently signed into existence by Governor Ron DeSantis, continues to rage as about a dozen other states are indicating interest in enacting their own so-called don't-say-gay bills. At number seven this week, a tie between race relations and immigration. There are so many issues dealing with race in America that trigger talk show discussion that the subject seems baked into the very fabric of the national conversation day after day. 
These run the gamut from issues over policing in urban centers, the education of our children, the ongoing matter of congressional redistricting, and voter rights legislation. On the immigration front, pre-midterm elections debate between the parties over whether or not to ease Title 42 border restrictions installed by the CDC in March of 2020 under former President Trump in the name of preventing the spread of the newly arrived coronavirus has begun to take center stage in the national conversation. At number six, COVID-19 and psychology. The pandemic seems to be receding, at least as reflected in day-to-day American life, but concerns still linger about global variants in China and Europe triggering yet another domestic wave of the coronavirus in the weeks and months ahead. Meantime, on the psychological front, effects of this thing called long COVID and growing reports of attendant brain fog, not to mention the ongoing disruption of day-to-day life economically and otherwise, are triggering an epidemic of depression and a disturbing spike in suicide rates. At number five, big tech and social media. The apparent attempt by Elon Musk to initiate a hostile takeover of Twitter was the major big tech story of the week. And it's created yet another dust-up in terms of the nation's concerns about social media bias, freedom of speech in the digital era, and the future of the increasing obsolete legal provision called Section 230 that has afforded the powers that be in Silicon Valley with enormous protection from legal liability for their conduct as mega communications platforms in the rapidly evolving modern world. At number four this week, partisan politics, the 2022 and 2024 elections, and the ongoing January 6th committee investigation. Where do we even begin? It's always political season in America, only increasingly more so as we get closer to the midterm elections, in which the Republicans are expecting a huge red wave across the nation, and they're regaining control of the House and the Senate. The January 6th committee investigating the attack on the Capitol spent a good part of a day contentiously questioning Trump White House advisor Stephen Miller about the former president's role in the event, focusing on his speech at the ellipse prior to the riot. At number three, the Brooklyn subway shooting, crime and gun control. Although hardly the only mass shooting in America in recent weeks, the vicious and methodical attack by a gunman in a crowded Brooklyn, New York subway car during rush hour captured and exacerbated the fear and disgust in America over crime and violence. And it brought the controversial issue of gun control back into the spotlight, raising the ongoing question, do guns kill people or do people kill people? At number two, the economy. The ongoing spike in runaway inflation, including the punishing impact of rising prices at the gas pump, the grocery store, and the housing market, are offset by any gains being made in bringing down the unemployment rate. All of which are inflicting devastating blows on the Biden administration as we approach the midterm elections. And at number one this week, the Russia-Ukraine war and U.S. foreign policy. The horrific war grinds on as the Western world admires the grit and resolve of the Ukrainian military, people, and leadership in the democracy's David and Goliath battle against the Russian bear and Vladimir Putin's propaganda machine. The sinking of a powerful Russian battleship, the guided missile cruiser Moskva, by Ukraine has dealt the Russians a devastating blow as its campaign to destroy the will of its former Soviet Republic meets unexpected obstacle after obstacle. Thank you, Kevin Casey from Talkers Magazine. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison rap. The Brooklyn subway shooter was a heavy story that shook folks up across the nation. We're joined now by WABC New York personality, community safety activist, and former GOP nominee for mayor of the Big Apple, Curtis Lewa. 
my opponent, Eric Adams, campaigned that he would be a law and order mayor. And I always said during the campaign he would not. Uh, and that's so obvious in the analytics. Uh, I never thought in my wildest dreams that even Eric Adams would have a worse record when it comes to crime and public safety than the previous mayor, Bill de Blasio, had over eight years. Crime has skyrocketed in our city, in the streets, in the parks, especially in the subways, 200%. And there's no plan. It's almost like we take the police, they run from uh, crime to crime to show a presence. But the bottom line is they took a billion dollars out of the police budget when de Blasio was the mayor in the summer of 2020. They've never put it back. They have less cops. And we've seen this before. And it took Rudy Giuliani back in 1993 to get elected to take uh, New York City from being the murder capital to the safest big city in America in eight years. We're not at that point yet, but we're certainly falling into that abyss. It's amazing how the politicians always turn it into a political conversation. I heard Eric Adams' uh, major speech to the public uh, yesterday, and uh, basically it sounded to me like a typical speech um, full of uh, platitudes and ultimately ending that we have a gun problem. Well, remember, he has an agenda, and that is, uh, in his own mind, one day he hopes to run for president of the United States as a Democratic candidate. So if you keep blaming everything on gun control, that's par for the course. Now, he's never been shot. I was shot with five hollow-point bullets on the orders of John Gotti Sr. to John Gotti Jr. and the Gambino crime family. I know what it's like to be a victim of a gun, an illegal handgun at 38. But I'll tell, I'll tell the mayor this and everyone else, there are at least a million illegal handguns in New York City already, and they don't decompose, uh, you know, they'll last uh, uh, for four lifetimes. And the idea is you put the pressure in the streets so that people are not going to carry them in the streets and do battle. Giuliani was very effective in doing that. Eric Adams is not. And there's just no way you're going to be able to take the guns that people have in their homes or that they have stored in their personal dwellings. Uh, this is America. You can't do that. So uh, Eric Adams can complain about all the illegal handguns, but he's got to put the pressure on criminals so that they won't carry them and use them in the streets. What type of an impact is this having on the psyche, uh, on the mood, uh, on the feelings of New Yorkers? Well, not only are they unnerved, but they're registering their uh, anger by leaving. Uh, the exodus continues to Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, Texas, Tennessee, and other parts. Uh, there's a massive exodus of people out of New York City. So if we don't get control of the crime problem, not only will the population continue to be depleted, but we're never going to get people back into these huge office buildings, most of which are vacant, which uh, uh, the landlords might well have to turn either into storage units or mausoleums because the, people are too used to working at home. They have a better quality of life. Uh, the uh, big CEOs have given up trying to force them to return uh, to the office buildings because they recognize unless there are safe streets and a safe subway, you're never going to be able to entice workers to come back and work a five-day week.
Now, you've returned to the airwaves. Speaking of returning, uh, you're doing a show uh, with Anthony Weiner on WABC. It's uh, it's not an everyday situation. Um, so I'm curious, how are you spending your time? And um, I don't know if you're able to announce or say, but I would think uh, having been the Republican nominee in the last election, it wasn't like you were some novelty guy from the media running on the sidelines. You won that nomination by a landslide. And of course, you were up against a difficult situation, but it may not be the same. Are you still involved in politics in terms of being an active player? Oh, many people come to me because they're uh, amazed at what I was able to do with nothing. I had no money. I was a never-Trumper as a Republican, which is usually the mark of death. And as Rudy Giuliani himself said, there's nobody closer to Donald Trump in the world than Rudy Giuliani. He supported me in the Republican primary and then general election. He said, Curtis, you don't realize you beat Trump. You're the only candidate who's actually been able to run a race where the other candidate was a Trumper. You clearly were not, and you won. Now, ultimately, in the general election, I lost simply because of the overwhelming number of people who are registered as Democrats. And Republicans have either fled, uh, they passed away, and their percentage is, is so small. But people come to me, Democrats, Republicans, independents, people who want to get involved in politics, and they want to sort of learn from me. How did you do it? You had no money. You left uh, your talk radio career. Uh, you eventually were able to overcome enormous odds, and you, you handled yourself well against this uh, huge Democratic uh, machine. So I've pretty much become a consultant free of charge. I don't charge money <laughs> because I want to help people who are idealistic, who want to make a change in the political system, regardless of their party affiliation, because I was always an independent. I was the chairman of the New York State Reform Party. Cuomo put all the third parties out of business. That's why I ended up running as a Republican. And winning. And I'll tell you, I'm going to be a consultant now, and I'm not going to charge you anything. Hang in there. <laughs> Things could turn around where um, you could win an election uh, if you remain active um, uh, with at least that potential. Uh, again, I don't know how appropriate it is for you at this point to, to talk about that. But uh, Well, no, no. I, I, I certainly I don't just have my toes uh, dabbling in the tub. You know, I'm knee deep. Uh, but I'm also running the Guardian Angels in New York City and all over the world. We're in 13 countries and 130 uh, cities. And in addition to hosting uh, the program with Anthony Weiner, Left versus Right, uh, I do a total of 20 hours on WABC, overnights, afternoons. Basically, the weekends represent WABC always broadcasting Curtis. <laughs> so so you've been doing a, a lot of fill-in and in other words you're on the air a lot oh yeah i'm uh the other side of midnight uh for like uh three of the early morning shifts which i love the best because it's theater of the mind oh yeah. uh you can be campy you can be theatrical uh people don't want to hear politics they don't want to hear about the ukraine at three o'clock or four o'clock in the morning they know there's plenty of time to catch up that's WABC New York personality, founder and leader of the Guardian Angels, and recent GOP nominee for mayor of the Big Apple, Curtis Sliwa. Coming up next, a conversation with nationally syndicated Talkers Heavy 100 superstar, Jimbo Hannon. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison rap.
One of the great bands of the golden age of album rock, Gun Hill Road, has been around for more than 50 years. The members of Gun Hill Road are Steve Goldrich, Paul Reich, Glenn Leopold, Brian Coonan, and yours truly, Michael Harrison. I wrote the lyrics to a song on our new album, What Year Is This? It's titled, I Know You're Real. It's about the relationship between human beings and our friends in the animal kingdom. I know you're real, I know you're real I understand that you're real Please take a moment to write down the following web address to see the music video of this inspirational song that contains some wonderful animal images that'll rock your heart and soothe your soul. Here's the address, write it down. I know you are real.com. That's I know you are real.com. If you love animals, you'll feel real good after seeing this video. I know you are real.com. Continuing now with the Michael Harrison rap. The impact of media itself is always reflected in conversation in the media. Joining us now is nationally syndicated talk radio mainstay, Jim Bohannon. I would make the the overriding statement that the fact that everybody today can make a movie on their smartphone, that everybody today could go on the air with their own radio show, and I use radio in the broader sense than the AM, FM, transmitter, licensed model. But, um, you know, like Louis Armstrong said, if I have to tell you what jazz is, you don't know. You won't know. <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. and, and, and it's the same thing with radio. It's, you know, what do we mean by radio? There's a certain magic involved. And there was a magic to the silver screen and a magic to going to the movies or a magic to have the newspaper delivered to your house the the very gatekeeping undemocratic aspect of media is what made being in it or being an audience to it or a reader of it or a listener of it so special that it had a magic to it and i wonder whether or not the fact that we have a society of people who are just used to being able to make their own recordings, take their own pictures, put out their own Facebook page, have a Twitter account, have an Instagram account, make a movie if they want to, have extraordinary um, computerized capabilities of doing special effects. And uh, now we're leaning into a world of uh, artificial intelligence, uh, virtual reality, augmented reality. Um how do you get people excited about the fact that, hey, you're in the newspaper, or hey, uh, you're going to meet Clark Gable, <laughs> you know, or you're going to, well, you, know, really, you know what I'm saying? Uh, yeah, I certainly do. I mean, I can recall when I got into radio, and then honestly, I got into radio for the not terribly uh, enlightened motivation of, of meeting girls, because I was going to be a <laughs> disc jockey on the, the local radio station in the Lebanon, Missouri, uh, KLWT. We called it Keep Listening, We're Trying. But in fact, we were the only game in town. Oh, you could pick up the, the distant signals, of course. We could pick up stations from nearby Springfield, and of course, we could pick up the, the giants like KMOX in St. Louis and and the like. But uh, uh, the fact is, we, we were right there. If somebody called in uh, from uh, the local town, we'd play the record for them. And uh, and we did. And, and it was uh, it was a big deal. These days, of course, technology has taken away the necessity of, of gatekeepers. Back then, the only way that I could sit in that room and play records and people could hear me was through uh, working at a, a company which had a radio license. That was necess- necessitated by 
by the fact that uh, uh, no, there was no other way to propagate the, the music that I was playing and the, the wonderful patter that I was weaving with my uh, my mouth. And uh, and then, of course, uh, in the 1920s, uh, when radio first came into its own in that regard, everybody was getting on the air, and you had a, a cacophony of, uh, of, uh, of sounds as, as different stations competed against one another and interrupted one another. And it was, of course, it wound up in a case that nobody could hear anything. And, of course, the government stepped in. Sometimes the government steps in because they feel like it or they, they feel there's a better good. Nobody really questioned the need for a federal radio commission, which is how it all began, mm-hmm. because something had to be done. Well, you couldn't have all this interference, so we would assign uh, licenses to different people. You get this frequency, you get that frequency, same two frequencies can't be too close together. We had to have gatekeepers. And uh, and ultimately, of course, technology increased, and you had the delivery by not just transmitter, but by, by satellite and the like. And now we're at the point where if you can get online... And you do a podcast. Well, what is that? Well, really, it's a radio show without the format boundaries and without government interference. That's why you can hear things on, let's say, a podcast that you would never be allowed to hear on radio. You know, uh, on a podcast, I can say bleep or bleep or bleep mm-hmm. on, on the radio. I'd, I'd better not do that or I can get into serious trouble. I can drag hundreds of affiliates with me into serious trouble with the government. What a tremendous handicap licensed media uh, operates under in a world where there is such ubiquitous media that's not licensed. It, it really is um, a burden and a handicap, and yet it's still understandable why there have to be certain levels of standards, but the whole idea of community standards and the the whole idea of certain language being allowed on the airwaves and not in other places, uh, uh, allowed in other places but not on the airwaves, is falling out of step with the reality that there are people out there with larger social media followings than some radio or TV stations have audience. Oh, absolutely. And, and of course, uh, we go back to the 1930s and community standards. Uh, let's not uh, uh, forget the uh, the shock that occurred uh, in the movie uh, uh, Scarlett O'Hara came out and Clark Gable said, frankly, Scarlett, I don't give a damn. <laughs> what? What did he say? Well, what he did, of course, was move the line just a little bit. And, and of course, there is that uh, that invisible line. I did a thing one time at a, a talker's radio conference to talk about the line. This was when Don Imus had uh, had I said something. Maybe it was the 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 Rutgers women's hair. I'm not sure, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. but I noted that the line had changed. Don, of course, was always challenging the line as many broadcasters had. And I I did a thing with with a piece of rope. Mm-hmm. And I, I demonstrated the fact that if we let this represent the line, and what I did, I took the rope, and I said, here I am on the right side of the line, and then I took the rope and put it over my head and put it on the other side. Wait a minute, I haven't moved, and suddenly I'm on the wrong side of the rope. That's right. How that, did that happen? Yeah, yeah. And then I tried to, to, to visually demonstrate in just a few minutes uh, how that, that line uh, for some people, maybe a source of protection. For other people, it would be a source of uh, embarrassment or even the the loss of of employment. So the, the the fact is that yes, community standards have changed today. I'm not even sure what a community standard is. What community are you talking to? Bingo. That's a real good question. What community? We always thought of community as local. Now there are communities that are spread out all across the globe. People have more of a relationship with somebody they've never met, or that lives a thousand miles away, than somebody that lives 
you know, down the street. Um, and, and that is a major change in culture and um, the, uh, the definition of the word community. That's nationally syndicated Westwood One radio talk star, Jim Bohannon. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison rap. COVID-19 remains on the talkers list of the 10 most discussed topics on news talk shows across America this past week. And the conversation runs the gamut from variants and vaccines to the draconian shutdowns in Shanghai, China, to the debate over masks and when and if it won't be necessary for us to wear them. One of the angles on this gigantic subject of the pandemic has been the growingly disturbing impact it's having upon the national psyche. Joining us now to discuss it is our Washington correspondent, the executive director of the D.C. radio company, Victoria Jones. There are so many aspects to what I'm about to discuss with you, Victoria, that I'm not even sure where to begin. Uh, There's long COVID. There's COVID fog. There's depression. um, People are saying they're having trouble. uh, And it's anecdotal for the most part. I've talked to some doctors about it, but people are saying they're having trouble uh, remembering names um, keeping track of uh, their, you know, stream of consciousness when they're talking. Um, and uh, it's kind of infectious. I mean, I don't mean that as a, as a pun, but, you know, when, when everybody is saying it, you start to think about it yourself. Like, am I going nuts? Yeah, absolutely. I have great trouble keeping track of things uh, in some areas and some of the time. Other times I'm sharp as a tack. And that's what's so frustrating because I can't nail it down. But I've noticed it when I talk to friends. Inevitably, it comes up. This week I went out for a birthday celebration with six girlfriends of, of one of our friends. And and I was pretty sure we were going to talk about this. Uh, and the topic came up. And I was like, wait, we're all talking about this because it's everywhere. We've all got it. I wonder if it is um, psychological or if there are aspects of a real ailment out there that falls between the cracks in terms of uh, either COVID um, tests and all that. It almost sounds like the past COVID tests. But um, when I talk to doctors and I try to get specific about it, they are as vague as laymen. Um, so this is one of those things that, the, the, you know, you, you can't really find a specific answer. Even the, even this thing, long COVID becomes very vague when discussed under the spotlight of scrutiny. Um, I'm always challenging myself or, or questioning myself as to, you know, am I going to draw a blank? <laughs> what, you know, but this goes back to my childhood. You know, when I was in school, I would be afraid that, you know, if the teacher called upon me or if you're taking a test, yeah. um, that, that, that you wouldn't remember the name of something or, or, or something that you need to know. Um, I've often thought that if I ever went on one of these game shows, you know how they have the easy part and then it gets harder. I would yeah. be publicly humiliated. <laughs> I would for, never submit myself. Right. You know, publicly humiliated. What was the name of the family on the Brady Bunch? Oh, my God. What was the name of the family on the Brady Bunch? But um, the serious aspect of this, because it's funny how you joke about a thing like this. 
um, or one jokes about a thing like this. But the serious aspect of this is that um, there is empirical evidence through survey after survey. When you talk to professionals in the psychology and psychiatry arena, that there um, that the uh, statistics for suicide, uh, for depression uh, are measurable and they attributed it they attribute it primarily to the covid pandemic that's of great concern because it doesn't seem to be getting better because even though the pandemic there's evidence to indicate hopefully the pandemic is behind us um the other stuff going on in the news, inflation and war and, and, and so many negative things uh, tend to feed into this depression that seems to be widespread because of quarantining and, you know, concern over health. That's for real. That's not vague. No, that's not vague. And I, I think we can always have more than one thing going on. So I definitely think we can have all these worries and concerns and anxieties, depressions and stress about all these related issues. At the same time, it has appeared for a year and a half, going on two years now, that where COVID symptoms have been going on for longer than 12 months, many people are unable to return to their previous working lives completely. And there are all kinds of symptoms. They're not all psychological. Some of them are breathlessness and heart palpitations. Um, some of them are severe brain issues, gastro problems, insomnia, tremors, nerve pain, all kinds of things. Uh, these cognitive issues are, are tricky to look at but they're very disabling this brain fog the anxiety memory concentration making decisions um and so th th this is this has been going on long enough that it's you know it, it it is real it's in enough different countries that countries have been talking to each other and saying you got it too that they know now that it's that it's real and th they also know for example um, not getting deep into stats, but one in five patients hospitalized with COVID was still not working five months later, according to the UK. Really? That's not because they didn't want to. They were having great difficulty just getting their oomph. So, you, you know, so, so again, you wonder what aspect of this is purely psychological, imaginary, I, I hate to use the word imaginary, but not caused by either a virus or some type of mechanical disorder. That might be because people have lost the will to work because they've been home or isolated. Um, and the isolation continues. Uh, people, even though there are, you know, talk about people going back to the theater and, and crowded restaurants and, and sporting events, um, statistics indicate that it's not like it used to be. That, that people are not out no. living their lives normally, whatever that is, the way they did prior to uh, the beginning of 2020. And um, it's very hard to uh, put a, a collective finger on just what it is. You know what else is strange? And, and you hear this from everybody, uh, wherever you go, people are having trouble keeping track of time that... Um, Time seems to be going very swiftly 
And people are saying things like, when did we say that? When did we do that? Was that last week or was that last month? <laughs> or was that last year? And I, I hear that often. Have you heard that from a, from more more people than usual? I mean, people have always said time goes quicker and quicker when you're getting older, or maybe time is really going faster because the universe is expanding. But it just seems that everybody that's part of the conversation is having trouble keeping track of time. Yes, I agree. I think sometimes it seems to be going quickly, sometimes it's slowly, sometimes it's like you're out of time, sometimes I'm alone in my place. And it's a very strange thing. That's the executive director of the DC radio company and our Washington correspondent, Victoria Jones. Coming up next, a conversation with Bill O'Reilly. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison rap. This report is brought to you by Genesis 2 Project, D2P. Recently, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the ODNI, released a preliminary report on possible threats posed by UFOs, now known as Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, UAP, and the progress the Department of Defense, UAP Task Force, has made in understanding any threats. Dr. J.C. Van Velkenberg is a former Los Alamos National Lab biophysicist who has been working with G2P to bring scientifically sound UAP data to the public. G2P has released the first scientifically authenticated documentation of UAPs, including images captured with infrared technology. Primo Forensics performed the digital forensic analysis. In tandem with the ODNI report, these data support the development of relevant processes, policies, technologies, and training for the U.S. military and government personnel upon encountering UAP. Visit Genesis2Project.com. Continuing now with the Michael Harrison Wrap as we discuss the hottest topics of the past week in the national conversation. As I mentioned earlier in the program, I had the opportunity this week to participate in a dinner conversation about current events with a diverse group of media, business, political, and religious figures at Mar-a-Lago, where we were joined by former President Donald Trump. Joining us now is an old friend of the president who recently went on tour with him, radio and television personality Bill O'Reilly. When you and I spoke last June, you were on the verge of beginning the um, the, the tour with Donald Trump, uh, the history tour. And I understand you, you had a couple of uh, two or three. I'm not sure exactly how many um, episodes Four. of it. Four. First of all, I want to congratulate you for getting through that, <laughs> because I know that working with Trump has to be difficult, whether you're his best buddy or not. Uh, but but and knowing you as I do sort of as a as a an acquaintance and, and having watched you and talked to you several watched you a lot and talked to you, I, I know that you do not uh, put up with uh, the kind of uh, compromise that some people who are uh, more concerned about just getting that paycheck are. That being said, what insights do you have about Donald Trump that that our listeners could um, benefit by having worked so closely with him? Well, it was a fascinating process. So the history tour um, with Donald Trump was a tremendous success monetarily. All right. So the president walked away, I think, the Washington Post, and I'm not going to verify it because that would be 
uh, unprofessional. But the Washington Post reported after the four shows were completed that the former president made a million dollars a show or something to that effect. Okay. So in the middle of a pandemic, we, I can tell you this, I can verify this. We sold 35,000 tickets and the top ticket for the Trump history show was $7,500. He's the Floyd Mayweather of politics. Right. And those, they sold out in all four venues. So the thing was a fabulous success. All right. But the hate Trump media, and that's 80% of what we have in America, they were invested in saying it was a failure. So the Sun Sentinel in uh, Florida, that was the first show in Fort Lauderdale, uh, they uh, entered the arena, I don't know how they got in, and shot empty seats. Well, maybe it was because the Secret Service hadn't allowed anybody in yet. And I told my wife <laughs> that, that that's, that's That's careful scene setting. Yeah, I mean, is that amazing? <laughs> I but do know that process happens, yes. Sentinel? No. Okay? And we brought it to their attention. We absolutely thought, hey, hey, what you people did was blatantly dishonest, and the show was a fabulous success, and they didn't do it. What they put out then got on all the Internet left-wing sites. Boom. Okay, and that's how it works. That's what they do. So I had to deal with that. But more importantly, I had a discussion with Donald Trump before we agreed to do these programs. And, it, and this tour was um, overseen by my corporation. So I had to start a third corporation to do the live shows, which I had, the Low Riley Productions. We produced it, not him. And we did that because this was totally different. It was not a rally. And the president and I have known each other for more than 30 years. I think I can speak to him unlike any other human being on the planet. And I basically said, Mr. President, this is history. We don't want to do a rally. We don't want to do the election. We don't want to do litigation. We don't want to do CNN. We are going to do what happened in your administration. And it was fabulous. It was just great. And he cooperated and Everything fell into place. It was a tremendously hard uh, work for my staff and me, but we pulled it off. Tremendous accomplishment. Um, just uh, as I said, he's he's known to be difficult. That's a very nebulous word. Yeah, he's different with me, though. If you look at the interviews, if you Google O'Reilly Trump interviews, you know, the classic John McCain interview, the classic Putin's a killer interview, he's different with me. Now, I don't know why. I mean, I never really asked him, but he, I asked him a question, he answers it. Whereas other people, he kind of once in a while wanders off into the land of Trump. Yeah. Well, I don't think you would allow him to do that. So, um, you know, you, you, you do know how to conduct an interview. And uh, even though it was a dialogue, you basically were the one driving the direction. So um, I can that imagine he was, he was in a, in, in a way lucky to have you because you weren't looking to corner him or ambush him, but you no, also and he weren't going to let him ambush and, himself. And, right. And he, he came across as well. And we got, we know this because we did feedback in the, uh, after the show, we always do that. Did you get your money's worth? Was it worth it? That kind of thing. And he came off unlike, and nobody's ever seen him like that before. That's talk radio and television personality, Bill O'Reilly. 
The conversation you just heard was excerpted from a much longer conversation on my podcast, The Michael Harrison Interview, which will be posted this coming Tuesday. You'll be able to hear the whole thing beginning Tuesday at mhinterview.com. Since leaving Fox News Channel about five years ago, Bill O'Reilly has been expanding his position on talk radio, and now he has a new nightly show titled No Spin News that promises to further increase his talk radio footprint. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison rap. Elon Musk, Twitter, and social media in general are perennial talk show topics. My son, Matthew B. Harrison, who serves as producer of this radio show, is a media attorney and law professor. I tell you, Matthew, uh, Elon Musk uh, is so mysterious, uh, and, and, and he continues to be in the news, and he's always in the news for something. I mean, they, they, and the things that he's in the news for are so diverse, whether we're talking about manufacturing cars or we're talking about um, going into space. As a matter of fact, I sometimes think one of the reasons he wants to go into space is maybe he comes from space. But that's, uh, I'm being silly, but uh, he is definitely from someplace else. And uh, perhaps uh, he's part of uh, human evolution. We, we shall find that out as the years go by. What's going on with him with this hostile takeover? What's the latest in, uh, in this uh, story about uh, Elon Musk and Twitter? Starting in the beginning of the year, Elon Musk started purchasing shares of Twitter uh, until he finally acquired about 9% of the total outstanding shares and became one of the largest shareholders. He went from being someone on Twitter sort of criticizing what was happening to putting his money where his mouth was and really trying to be active and making it better. He was offered a board seat, but on a stipulation that he wouldn't buy more stock. So he rejected the board seat, which sort of tipped off that perhaps he was going to attempt a hostile takeover. And then he, he put in a, a formal bid of $43 billion to make that purchase uh, for Twitter outright. Ah, uh, so, so the, um, the, the offering a board seat was sort of like an appeasement. They're going to appease him. Correct. And, and that would have been the best way to go through the system to get a voice. You'd be a shareholder, you'd get enough share, shares that you could then be a board member, and then you'd be able to have some control over the overall operation. Uh, owning it outright certainly would remove that, that hurdle of having to deal with both the board and the, the shareholders voting uh, for his particular changes, if he had any. Well, what issues are the board dealing with right now as of this offer? So they're looking at that three things. One is whether his offer is legitimate. There's questions both with the amount, the 54.20 per share is sort of this veiled uh, marijuana reference uh, for 20 slang. He has done a lot of um, sort of veiled references to marijuana with his other dealings when he talked about uh, bringing Tesla private smoked publicly on the Joe Rogan program. I doubt this has anything specifically to do with uh, cannabis legalization, but that's his own maybe pet terminology or um, one of his own private bents. Correct. So that certainly a uh, adds to the questions of whether is it is his offer in fact legitimate? Is it backed by anybody? He has enough money that he probably could purchase it himself and pay outright, but that's not generally how those things are done. Is it a reasonable amount? It is uh, an amount that is currently significantly more than the, the stock price is worth. It's uh, significantly more than it's worth when he started purchasing it at the beginning of the year. 
and the board is going to have to take into consideration whether or not that's reasonable and if it's whether it's in the best interest of the shareholders uh, if selling at that rate makes sense. And it's such a high number that they have to take it seriously. Mm, that's his fiduciary duty, I would imagine. Well, that's that's their, that's their that's their duty, rather their fiduciary duty. Yes. Yeah. Now, um, I'm trying to get a handle on what uh, societal uh, issue is driving him on this, because there there seems to be some type of a principle that he stands for, although it seems to change every time you look into his ideology. He mentioned something about Twitter um, not being fixed immediately. And that it was a um, a civilizational risk. What do you think he meant by that? Well, he sees Twitter, I think, as a as a public, a truly a public platform that that needs to be both broadly inclusive of of all types of people and ideas, as well as having the trust and um, the believability and and when content is posted that it is truthful and that it is valid and valuable. Hmm. Doesn't that go back to the whole issue that you and I have been talking about for years now, and that's uh, Section 230, <laughs> that, that that's what it was supposed to be. That's what Facebook was supposed to be, and Twitter and, and, the, and the mega platforms and social media, that the reason that they were exempt from being sued, et cetera, and from, from that type of liability is because they uh, would not engage in censorship, discrimination, uh, politization, all of the things that um, people are now complaining about, and that um, they should be subject then to all of the things that uh, all the all the all the platforms that they're stealing advertising from <laughs> are subject to. You hit the nail on the head, and and once uh, a company like Twitter starts exercising their editorial control, while they may not be changing the language in the tweets, they're certainly making broad decisions as to who can be on their platform and what qualifies as either misinformation um, or fake news uh, and therefore would allow them to then consider it a violation of terms of service and then ban that user. Yeah, but if the banning is uh, because of uh, uh, political spin or perhaps uh, Silicon Valley's inherent bias toward liberals, which, of course, uh, you know, liberals will say, hey, we were shut down as well by Facebook and Twitter. And a case can be made for that. But um, as apolitically as I can be, um, it seems to me that there is a bias against conservatives on these platforms. And that um, uh, goes back to uh, the claim, and it might be accurate, that uh, the whole Silicon Valley culture tends to lean in a, in a left uh, direction. And as a result, uh, it's um, revealed in how these platforms, in this case, Twitter, uh, example with Donald Trump, how these platforms go about affecting their bias. I know all I know is that uh, the, the years ahead and, and the situation that our society is in, in terms of the First Amendment, which really is the foundation upon which uh, Americanism, American freedom is based uh, is going to go through some rigorous challenges, and uh, we have to stay on uh, on top of it. How do you think this thing is going to work out? Either way, he's going to win, because either he's going to buy it uh, outright, he's going to force them to sell it to someone or a, a group that's going to probably be better off to take it private, um, 
you know, or or it's going to just turn into garbage and 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 no longer be the problem that that he sees it it could be. That's interesting. That's interesting. Uh, easy come, easy go. Uh, if it ceases to provide any type of a valuable function, uh, as we've seen with other platforms over the last 10, 15 years of this new era, um, Twitter can dissolve and disappear into something passe with something new that'll replace it. And that's certainly within the realm of possibility. Many of these social media giants right now, you know, got to where they are because they crawled on the bones of the previous uh, iterations of social media. That's my son, Matthew B. Harrison, who produces this show in addition to teaching media law at Western New England University School of Law. And that about does it for this latest installment of the Michael Harrison Wrap, an overview of the national conversation looking back at the week of Monday, April 11th through Friday, April 15th, 2022. Looking ahead, I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about next week, including the ever-lurking unknown factor that unanticipated surprise story that can take the national conversation spinning off in a totally unexpected direction. We sure do live in interesting times. I could be reached via email at michaelatalkers.com. My podcast, The Michael Harrison Interview, can be heard at mhinterview.com. And if you want to stay in touch with the inner workings of the talk media industry, please visit talkers.com. The Michael Harrison Wrap. Our producer is Matthew B. Harrison. Thank you for listening. The Michael Harrison Rap is a production of Good Phone Communications presented in association with Talk Media Network and Talkers Magazine. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved.